Today on this episode of the PV Roundup Special Spotlight. Um, there are this segment of patients where anemia is the driving force. In those patients, if you follow NCCN guidelines, it's much like our lower risk MDS patients. Today, doctors John Mascarenas and Andrew Kukendall join the podcast to discuss their approach to patients with myelofibrosis and anemia in this PV Roundup Special Spotlight. All opinions expressed are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the views of this educational initiative's supporters. Hi, I'm Dr. Andrew Kirkendall from Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, Florida, and joining me today is Dr. John Mascaranis. He's the director of the Center of Excellence for Blood Cancers and Myeloid Disorders at the Icon School of Medicine in Mount Sinai. So we primarily, primarily focus our clinical practices and, and research on myeloproliferative neoplasms. In this video, we'll specifically review our approach to patients with myelofibrosis and anemia. Anemia is a common complication of myelofibrosis, and the treatment approach to these patients may involve several strategies. So we've got a few questions to go over. So John, I, let's start off with this. How, in your practice, how do you typically approach patients with myelofibrosis and anemia? And I guess before that, you know, how common is this? So anemia is common. It's, it's probably the most frequent uh, clinical sign of myelofibrosis. It's present probably in two-thirds of patients at time of presentation. It, it worsens through the clinical course. Uh, nearly every patient with myelofibrosis has significant anemia at some point. Um, and a significant proportion of patients develop transfusion-dependent anemia. It's recognized as an adverse prognostic marker in essentially every uh, risk stratification tool. Um, and is a focus of therapeutic uh, intervention for, for many patients. And you get patients with myelofibrosis in which anemia is part of the, the trifecta of, of spleen and symptom burden and anemia. But then sometimes you do see patients where anemia is the sole uh, driving issue that, that brings them to the attention of the, of the uh, clinical team. And that's really the focus of, of intervention for those patients. So what percentage of patients would you say that anemia is the primary focus uh, of treatment? You know, it, it's probably about 15% of patients, I would say, that I see where they come to, to the cancer center and really their spleen and symptom burden may be minimal um, to almost non-existent or, or, or not really driving uh, the complaints. It's really that of a bone marrow failure state where you have uh, anemia and, and transfusion dependence. It is, uh, it is disruptive to their lives, their quality of life. It spends, they often spend a lot of time in the cancer center getting their transfusions. Some patients are getting transfusions weekly. Um, and that's very difficult for patients um, and their loved ones and their caregivers. So um, there are this segment of patients where anemia is the driving force. In those patients, if you follow NCCN guidelines, it's much like our lower risk MDS patients. Um, you check a erythropoietin level. Uh, if the EPO level is less than 500, in my opinion, less than 200, I would definitely give a try for an ESA, whether it's Procrit or Aranesp. I use higher doses. I try to give it weekly or as frequently as possible. And you get a 20 to 30% anemia response rate in, in patients with ESAs with myelofibrosis. Um, other lines of therapy could include danazole, the synthetic male androgen, um, or even immunomodulatory drugs like thalidomide or lenalidomide. Um, you could even use pomalidomide. These are all obviously used off-label, so one has to get prior authorization for these drugs. But collectively, I would say whether you're giving an ESA, a danazole, or an IMID, it's about a 20, 25, 30% response rate. The durability is often not that long. Sometimes it's six months to a year. Occasionally you get patients who will go several years um, and stay out of the transfusion suite or at least have significant reduction in transfusion burden. But I would still say it's an unmet need. Um, you know, we're, we're still looking for uh, drugs that, that really address anemia in a, in a 
uh, substantive and, and durable fashion. Um, and I, I would you know, just point out that that's a little bit different than the anemia that's part of the fulminant picture of myelofibrosis in which you're trying to address spleen symptom and anemia. Yeah, and I think so. When we think about these, like kind of three somewhat somewhat oversimplified groups, right? You have these patients that have proliferative symptoms, splenomegaly, constitutional symptoms, but they don't have anemia. And those patients, I think that that you know, rexolitinib, pedratinib, you know, maybe even pegritinib, but but that that makes a ton of sense of using those, and you don't have to worry as much about the cytopenias that can be associated there. Then you have this middle group, uh, right, of patients that have proliferative symptoms and uh, a significant uh, amount of anemia where, where we'll kind of talk about that in, in a little bit. But then, you know, focusing on this 15% you talked about where we, where really anemia is the driving force, you know, where they don't have too much of a, a, a spleen enlargement, symptoms are okay. Um, but really you're trying to focus on the anemia you're using danazole, ESAs, uh, lenalidomide, thalidomide, pomalidomide, as you mentioned. I think this is, this is the area that's a little bit interesting to me because we, we understand recently with the data from Pacritinib, which obviously is, has accelerated approval for, for thrombocytopenic myelofibrosis patients, you know, with this IRAC uh, and, and ACVR1 inhibition you know, and, and the potential to improve anemia in some of these retrospective looks at the, at the PERSIST studies, you know, is this something that we are going to be using now in, in terms of just patients that have isolated anemia? I mean, we have the upcoming approval of mamalotinib, also inhibits ACVR1, has probably more robust data in terms of, of improving transfusion independence rates and improving anemia. You know, is, are these going to be leveraged in patients that, that really don't have too many proliferative symptoms? We're just going to be using them for, for anemic patients? I think, in, at least in the case of mamalotinib from the Momentum study, it was compared head-to-head -head against one of the agents you mentioned, danazole, right, and seemed to, to have rates that were nominally better, at, at least, you know, maybe not statistically significantly superior, but nominally better at, at improving transfusion independence rate. However, this was in a, a group of patients that had splenomegaly and symptoms, right? So, so can we can we extend that to patients without those symptoms? Is is, is I guess my question. You know, I, I don't think so. I mean, it, in in my opinion, the, the the key part there is those were patients who had measurable symptom burden, uh, spleen ha had been previously treated with ruxolitinib, and and also had this component of anemia. So to me, the, the ideal patient for a, a JAK inhibitor based approach uh, with mamalotinib, for example is trying to address the trifecta of spleen symptom and anemia. I think if you have a patient who has more of an MDS-like picture uh, with anemia driving, it, driving the, the, the clinical care decisions, I, I would prefer to use one of the non-JAK inhibitor-based approaches, um, you know, as we outlined before, you know, and or the obvious would be to refer for, for a clinical trial, you know, maybe with an ALK inhibitor or something of that nature. So, so, yeah, I think, so let's focus on this middle group of patients that have symptoms, maybe some splenomegaly and anemia. I think this is, this is probably the bulk of myelofibrosis patients and, yeah. and really where, where I think the, the, the interest lies right now. Because, you know, I think that if, you're, if you had a kind of brand new diagnosed, newly diagnosed patient uh, with, with anemia, splenomegaly, symptoms, and let's say all options are on the table and, and uh, including the upcoming approval of mamalotinib, how do you make your decision about what agent to leverage, um, and and you know what, what's what's the driving force behind that decision? You know, I think it, I think it remains a little bit uh, in the gray zone. I don't know that we have clear cut answers for every patient. It's a nice problem to be in in twenty twenty three going forward, where you have multiple choices. I, I think for patients who have significant thrombocytopenia and anemia, my my choice would still be pacritinib um, based on the persist data. I think if you have a patient who's got uh, probably higher platelet count, 
with uh, significant anemia um, and spleen and symptom burden, you know, particularly if they've seen ruxolitinib or fedratinib previously, that would be a patient that I would pick malolotinib for. I, I was impressed by the, the follow-up data from the Momentum study in terms of, of the safety um, and, and durability of, of uh, spleen symptom and uh, anemia responses. Um, but the, the answer is that, I, you know, you, you, you could have a, an area there where, um, you know, either, either of the drugs would be appropriate. Um, and we don't have data, unfortunately. We, we may never really have data uh, that's related to sequencing. So we're not, we don't have data of what, what is the response rate if you start with pacritinib and, and then move to mamalotinib or vice versa, mamalotinib to pacritinib. We have data from Rux uh, to mamalotinib. We have data from Rux to pacritinib embedded within the Persist 2 but we don't have sequencing data with the with the other agents. Yeah, I think I think certainly we're going to figure things out as as we get access to these agents and we can see what works best, you know, in different scenarios. I think one kind of hypothetical scenario I'll, I'll put to you is is instead of the newly diagnosed patient, what about the patient who comes in doing reasonably well on ruxolitinib, um, but is developing more anemia? You know, what 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 are are there are there thresholds? Or are there um, areas where you're going to say, no, I'm going to switch now to, to pacritinib or mamalotinib, or, or are, you know, is there a different kind of patient presentation where you'd say, no, I think that this is a patient may, maybe I'll add on something like danazole or loose patercept to, as opposed to doing a complete switch. I, you know, I think there's extremes where it's a little bit easier to make that decision. So if someone is doing really well on ruxolinib with, with, uh, spleen and symptom, um, response and has maybe mild anemia, um, not transfusion-dependent anemia and anemia that's not bothering the patient, I'd probably leave the patient alone. Uh, in a patient where spleen and symptom is at bay, but you still have significant anemia and even transfusion-dependent anemia, you know, I think you have options. Um, they could range from adding uh, danazole or an imid uh, or an ESA to the ruxolinib um, or even loose patercept um, or switching, switching to mamalotinib or even pacritinib, depending on, on the platelet count and other, and other features. Um, I, I don't know that there's a clear-cut answer. I think mamalotinib would definitely give an opportunity to to continue, and and there's data from uh, from the studies that have been presented, even most recently at ASH, would um, continue to give you um, that spleen and symptom benefit while trying to address anemia. Um, and and again, you can sequence these drugs too. So I, you know, I don't think it's all or all or none. You can try one and then move move to the next one. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's fantastic. I think that certainly we're going to get to to know a lot more as we get um, you know Mamalotinib's upcoming approval, uh, get access to these in the clinic, and and you know I think the the challenge has been that very rarely have these drugs been compared head to head, and the trials have been done in, in very similar patient populations, but not exactly the same patient population. So it's difficult to kind of say which agents these are going to do better in. I mean, the the one study I always reference is is uh, go back to the Simplify One study, right? So the one time that Ruxolitinib uh, two jack inhibitors have been really compared head to head versus each other, and and what we saw was was you know somewhat you know somewhat uh, upsetting in the sense that it didn't lead to an approval, but it, but I think it was very interesting in the sense that these are two jack inhibitors compared to head to head, and we saw that you know spleen volume responses were quite similar between uh, ruxolitinib and, and mamalotinib, and and symptoms it seemed like both improved symptoms, although ruxolitinib seemed to do so somewhat a little bit better than mamalotinib, but maybe not so much in, in certain patient populations, right? That wasn't an anemic patient population. That was an all-comers study. And so we really don't know kind of the relative benefit of mamalotinib compared to other JAK inhibitors in anemic patient populations where we think maybe it has more, more of a role. So, so once again, great discussion. And I know we're running out of time. So thanks so much, John. Uh, and thank you all for watching. I hope that you found this discussion 
uh, informative and useful for your practice and, and patients with myelofibrosis. And that's today's special spotlight. Thank you for joining us for this episode of PV Roundup Podcast. For more stories like these, visit us at pvroundup.com to subscribe to our weekly newsletters. Thoughts, comments, or suggestions? Please leave us a review on your preferred listening platform or email us at editorial at pvroundup.com. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or Google. You can also download our Amazon Alexa Flash Briefing, Medical News Roundup, and just ask, what's my Flash Briefing? Thanks today to our guests, Doctors Mascarenas and Kukendall. Join me next time for an episode where we cover the latest stories in the world of medicine. <laughs>